you want to get the latest news about our podcast, including upcoming episodes, exclusive content, and live events, visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about digital media. This is actually a special, extra special episode. I didn't actually do the interview on it. Joining me via Skype is our Buffalo correspondent slash, I guess uh, you run the the, uh, the It's All Journalism Buffalo office, right? That's That's your job right now, right? This is Amber Healy. That's right. Yeah, I've been the Buffalo affiliate for a couple of years now. Yeah, cool. Bringing us wonderful Buffalo stories, but also, of course, each week writing our our, our web content, an important, integral part of our podcast. And actually, you kind of uh, mentioned that you were going to do this this interview, and we and we said, well, why don't we see if we could do this for a podcast? So, so let's talk a little bit first about the interview. Who is it with, and what's it about? So the interview is one that was taped here in Buffalo off a soundboard, so the quality is nice and crisp. I interviewed the author, uh, Michael Barclay. He is a Canadian. He lives in Toronto. And he just put out a book on what some would call Canada's band, uh, The Tragically Hip, for the uninitiated, which I'm guessing will be most of our listeners other than my Canadian friends. The Tragically Hip had been around for more than 30 years. They were getting ready to release an album in 2016. And it was announced that their lead singer, Gord Downey, was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. He passed away last October in 2017. But for the, the time in between, the band did a farewell tour coast to coast. It was a very emotional thing. Fans came from all around the world to the 15, I think, shows that they did between Vancouver and their hometown in Kingston. And the book, that Michael wrote, it's called The Never-Ending Present, which is a line from one of their songs. And Michael did this tremendous thing where he used old interviews, but also some newer ones with not members of the band, as they are notoriously private and very protective of, of their own offstage lives, but people close to the band, their sound engineers, their music techs, bands who toured with the hip through the course of their 30-year career. It's an exhaustive book. It's a beautiful piece of work. And... Um, I was asked to do the interview on stage for the Buffalo book launch party by Jeremy Hoyle, who is the lead singer of the Strictly Hip, and they've been covering hip songs exclusively since 95, so for most of Tragically Hip's career. Yeah, that's that's pretty niche, a uh, cover band for right. a, a Canadian band. Now, how long, how long, I was just thinking about this over the weekend, how long have you and I known each other? We have known each other since August of 2004. Yeah, I knew you were going to know the exact date. <laughs> Um, I can I can get the date for it if you yeah, want it. That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. No, two thousand four. Yeah. Wow, that's longer than I than I thought. I thought it was like ten years. Well, anyway, be that as it may, you know, we work together at the connection. You, you've had many other jobs. You you're up there in Buffalo, being a journalist, but also you've been a, you know, one of the things that you you sort of specialized in is is music journalism. Can you sort of talk about that? About what type of writing you're doing around that? There's a nice overlap here. One of uh, one of the first guests that I brought to It's All Journalism 
two years ago was Alan Cross, who was a musicologist and a go-to for especially Canadian music. But he's interviewed anybody who's anybody, everybody from, you know, uh, U2 and Prince to The Hip, The Foo Fighters. You know, he's interviewed everybody in the course of his 30-year career with a radio station in Toronto. I write for his blog, which is called The Journal of Musical Things. I also have been writing for the past couple of years for another podcast uh, appropriately called Geeks and Beats, where we write about everything from pop culture and technology to uh, the stuff that I specialize in tends to be a lot of really wonky, nerdy music policy things like net neutrality and copyright and royalties. Yeah, we've been trying to put our brains together to come up with a good net neutrality uh, podcast episode. We'll we'll identify a guest and we'll, we'll do that in an upcoming podcast because there's still plenty to talk about it. Absolutely. So before we go into the interview, let's let's set it up a little bit. You're you're at a venue and you've got a very squeaky voice. You want to Yeah, timing was not my friend. I typically get sick for like once a year. That's it. And as luck would have it, that Friday night happened to be toward the tail end of the first week of me being sick. I sound terrible. I apologize in advance for the really craptastic quality of my voice. <laughs> I, I did everything that I could short of just straight up downing a bottle of NyQuil before I went on stage to interview Michael that night. It kind of helped. It kind of didn't at one point, And I think you can hear this on the recording. I stood up to grab my mug of tea that I had on stage and I knocked over a water bottle and someone in the audience thought it would be funny to ask if I really had tea in my mug or if it was something else like brandy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we, we will all draw, draw our, con our conclusions from that. So let's, uh, let's just dive right into it. It's a fun little interview from Amber Healy. Well, I think I'm going to make it. I'm going to try. Uh, I apologize. This is the one week a year that apparently I decided to get sick. <laughs> Is anybody using that mic later? Because you should be close to it. No, uh, I think I'm going to do this for the evening. Can everybody hear me okay? Is this, is this good? All right. I also don't want to breathe on anybody in the front row. You're also recording this, so I think you do want to be closer. Yeah. Hi. All right. <clears throat> We're both radio people, so. Right, exactly. Um, all right, I do want to start with an easy one, but I'm not going to ask you what surprised you. Because I answered that already. You already answered it, and I think nobody wants to hear it again. What is your first memory? of the hip? I'm 46 years old, so in 1988, when the first EP came out, I was 16, and I heard Small Town Bring Down on Q107 in Toronto. And, yeah. uh, and I was a big REM fan, and obvious similarities there. I was a big 5440 fan, obvious similarities there. Yeah, th and, but it wasn't until I saw them, and I think this is probably true for most people. So that summer, they played uh, a Canada Day Festival, of course, put on by CFNY in uh, Molson Park in Barrie, and they were on very early. They were on at like one in the afternoon, maybe. Oh, wow. Yeah, and maybe Jeff Healy was headlining. I can't remember. And obviously, uh, this, is, this is the most obvious answer in the world. Gordowney was riveting. Go figure. And I loved watching Johnny Faye play. I was a fan of a lot of garage rock. I mean, rock and roll in the 80s was a very strange thing. And there's a lot of... I mean, I love, I love new wave music. I love synthesizers. I'm a keyboard player, so I have to... But there was a real paucity of, of uh, real raw rock and roll in the 80s. And even a great band like The Replacements, when they went to the studio, it just that somehow evaporated. And it's like, I love The Replacements, but those records, can someone de-85 them? Like, there's a, I think there's a studio trick. You can like, take the 80s out of your record. 
But the tragic hip did not sound like that, and, and they were incredibly exciting. You mentioned uh, Gord is a riveting performer, which anybody who ever saw him live knows instantaneously. You know a Gord Downey song from hearing it, you know a, tra a tragically performance from seeing it. I mean, it's just, it's inseparable. Mm -hmm. What is your favorite Gord Downey dance move? <laughs> I mean, I can't say that you can like beat up the mic stands here, because he did, of sure. course, but. But I, I think that actually what was fascinating to me was watching that final tour and knowing that he was physically compromised, obviously. Mm -hmm. What other people don't know is he actually had a lot of uh, hip pain even before the cancer came. So he was starting, he was working with a hockey trainer on his hip and so he was probably likely to get less animated anyway, but anyway, 2016, very heavy, but so he physically can't do the things he used to do. He's not leaping around and destroying mic stands, but like it was the subtle things and he would just be like little things with his fingers or just, it would be almost like, like with the intensity of Tai Chi or something. Or he, he would do these things that would kind of mock his disease or kind of like lighten them, like why are we all here? Are we watching a man die on stage? And he'd, he'd kind of dance like a 100-year-old man, you know, like, oh, 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 And it's like, wow, this is like, this whole event could be so dark and you're really making light of it. You're like showing that you are very much alive and here and you're, you're making a jest out of it and clowning and it was amazing to watch. I think there was not a moment and obviously, you know, we're, we're outsiders. We weren't there with him, with his family in the last few months or so. But I don't think there's anyone who truly lived every moment of his life, especially facing that, mm -hmm. better or more than Mr. Downey. Well, here's something else that surprised me. I'm a big fan of Sharon Jones, who uh, is an incredible singer from New York City. And uh, she died, sorry, in 2016 or 17? 16. A year before. Was it 17? So just a month after, okay. But my point is, I knew she had had cancer and she postponed the release of one record. And then um, she was like bedridden for months. And then so, because it was pancreatic, so that really, That's oh my good. Lord, it's the worst. So when she recovered, she put out the record in tour. She had the bald head and, and she was like, I kicked it, I kicked it. Uh, then I had heard that it had come back around the time the documentary about her debuted. But I didn't realize that she toured that entire year while doing chemo. And I, inter I interviewed her bassist for this book because I really wanted to talk to someone else who had been through this experience. And uh, uh, Gabe Roth, a beautiful man, and he said, uh, yeah, like, like they played 30 or 40 dates. Like Gordani did 15 Jeez. and he played to tens of thousands of people and that was unprecedented in rock and roll history. Sharon Jones not playing to that size of crowd but played more dates and all through that year and he's, he said that she would like be you know, kind of uh, wheezing backstage and hobbling, and then she would get on stage and just, oh, like, just give it. And he'd been playing with her for 20 years, and he said it was the best I'd ever seen her. And, and then she'd get off stage and would have, like, oxygen, and, you know, just incredible. And, and you watch what Downey did, and you watch, um, you just watch how much he summoned there, and you realize what a communion it was with the audience, right? You realize how much you feed off that energy other people give you, and how much you really witnessed how much you feed off the people immediately around you. Everyone talked about the stage construct during that tour. The first set was um, them playing pretty much like this, like the size of a stage they would have played in their earliest days. And then, then it changed later. But, and one um, drama professor theorized that he's, he's really building up that energy to do the rest of that show. So you start the show like this, and you feel that spiritual vibration from your brothers. And then, then you're ready to go and, and make it big. I think, I might be mistaken on this, but I think it was Kate Fenner who said on the Strombo special, uh, after watching the last, especially the last few shows of the final tour, you know, oh my God, he got us. 
-hmm. Like, he's he's clearly not sick. <laughs> the way he's out there performing. And obviously, it wasn't the same mm -hmm. enigmatic, big energy, mm. wildly gesturing. Yeah. You know, is he is he crazy? Or mm. is he just that amped up on what he's doing? Mm -hmm. But he was still such a performer mm -hmm. in that last string of 15 shows. Mm -hmm. uh, you could almost, maybe we all hoped mm -hmm. that... Um, Maybe maybe he was joking, bad joke. Terrible. But maybe the worst. You know. <laughs> uh, no, know. it was fascinating. Was what was fascinating about it, it was it was unprecedented. I could only think of one other person who'd done something like that that publicly, and that is Warren Zevon, sure. who had uh, was given a three month terminal diagnosis of lung cancer. Now Lord Warren Zevon abused his body and other people for years, uh, but he uh, so he had, had three months. So he's like, I'm gonna make a record. He says to his engineer, uh, "Do they still make EPs?" And uh, uh, but so he made this record, and then he decided to do one last show. He was a good friend of David Letterman's. He would fill in for Paul Schaefer all the time. Paul Schaefer from Thunder Bay, Ontario. He would fill in for Paul Schaefer, so he and Letterman were tight. And he said, "I want to do one on the show." And Letterman gave him the whole 90 minutes or whatever, however long Letterman's show was, uh, to, to perform. And I thought that is the only other time I can think of where someone is terminal and conscious and wants to do one last thing. Uh, and he said, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not afraid of terminal cancer. I'm afraid of uh, 45 minutes of live national television, but, uh, you know. Um, and then, whatever, 15 years later, or whatever it is, uh, Gordani did the same thing on a much yeah. bigger scale. Um, yeah, and with the nation watching his every move, even more attentively than they did yeah, before. Yeah, with more than 11 million people watching. Just the <laughs> final one. Yeah. yeah. Um, while you were writing the book, mm -hmm. was there any song or album that got you listen to more or less than anything else? Or did you try to separate uh, the subject matter from the source material, so to speak? I listened to a lot of hip last year. <laughs> last year? <laughs> anything in particular? Well, I, I mean, I, I've been telling people this a lot, but I, uh, I am not the biggest hip fan in the world because I have met those fans. And I know that I am not, I am not those fans. Because those people live and breathe it every day. Yeah. Like, for a lot of people, this is not music they pull down from the shelf every so often. Like, this is, this is a part of their daily existence. So I have to admit, I am not, I do not have that degree of loyalty. So, you know, I always followed everything they did, and some records would come out, and they'd hit or miss. I mean, you don't love everything any artist does. Does everybody love every Neil Young record? Every single one? So, going back to the ones that I had missed, and there's only one of them that I still just didn't really get into at all, but on every other one, there was at least several incredible songs that I kind of overlooked and just diving into those and, and realizing just how rich the entire catalog is, not just the ones I had already loved. It's sad that you need a finite end to something to kind of realize that and really appreciate it, but, mm -hmm. but it really does bring out all those other things in his solo work and in the hip stuff and everything. So with that in mind, kind of going back and listening to it more, maybe more attentively or what have you, mm -hmm. what is an underrated hip song? Is there one that like really stands out as, man, everybody missed the, they missed the ball on this one? Well, I thought I knew, and then I started telling people, and they're all like, oh, yeah, of course. So, <laughs> but uh, I didn't love uh, In Violet Light, came out in 2002. I loved It's a Good Life, obviously one of their greatest songs. Great song, great song. And the rest of it, I just, whatever. It was at this point in my life I was listening to different things too, but, uh, but throwing off glass uh, makes me weep every time I hear it. And I, it's partially because I think it's a, it's a companion to Trick Rider, a song on his first record. And Trick Rider is a song about watching your children do something dangerous. And so his eldest would have been five years old when he wrote Trick Rider. 
And you know, you watch them trick riding on a horse or a bicycle or just doing something ridiculous that they think is amazing, and you as the parent are just like, Jesus, no! Yeah, don't do that. And throwing off glass is the inverse. It's, it's the car full of hooligans driving by, uh, catcalling, and the daughter says, why is the world so creepy? And, oh. and the, the father tries to convince her that, no, in fact, life is exquisite. You talked a minute ago about something that I had noticed watching the Kingston show in particular, mm-hmm. uh, the configuration of the band. Mm-hmm. Uh, this has been, for the whole time, I mean, this was a very tight-knit group mm-hmm. of men who always had each other's backs. Mm-hmm. During the course of the final shows, you know, it was, it, was, it was the tight-knit, and then they sort of backed off into a more traditional formation. Mm-hmm. This is a band that notoriously never gave interviews, very, very seldomly, few and far in between. How do you write a book about a band that doesn't talk about itself. How do, you, how do you do that? And were you optimistic that maybe this would be the chance, this would be the time for one of them to come forward and be like, you know what, let's have some coffee. Let's, let's, let's do this. Let's actually... In the back of my mind, that was there, but given the track record, I never expected that. They did talk to the press with guns to their heads. Uh, um, there was enough of a public record that, that there was lots of stuff they had said. And... Uh, I mean, obviously, a lot of the book is constructed from new interviews I did with dozens of people, like uh, people, producers who made the records, uh, opening bands, uh, friends, uh, people who grew up with them in Kingston. There's a lot of new research in the book, but in terms of words out of their mouth, that's all stuff from the public record. And also, I had a very long interview with Downey in 2000 for my previous book, and I went back to the transcript and realized there were things in that that we didn't use in in that book, and I thought, oh, that, that's gold, that's great. Um, nice surprise. Nice surprise. Uh, but yeah, this is also, this is the story of them, but it's also the story about everybody else. It's about, it's about where they're situated in culture, it's about all the people who worked with them, it's about everybody who believed in them, everybody who they believed in. And someday, perhaps, uh, Rob Baker's mused about writing his memoirs, that may or may not happen, but, uh, you know, that'll be a different story, and that'll be his take on it, and obviously, I didn't, I I couldn't talk to the family in the the last two years, so there's no intimate details of the anguish of the last two years or anything like that. That's very private, raw family stuff. Sure. And if they ever choose to talk about that, that's their prerogative. That's, that's not what this book is. So, yeah, I didn't, I didn't try and, uh, there's no conjecture. I didn't, like, Imagine what it must be like to go through this, because that's not my job. My right. job is to tell the rest of the story. So if they want to tell that story someday, that's, that's their story to tell. And that's a completely fair response. I just, and there's a section in the back of the book, of course, that, that details where all that source material came from. Yeah. And it's almost as interesting as everything that comes before the book, where all the information came from and how you wove all the I write some nice sentences. Together. You write some good <laughs> sentences. You, you, you have prefer the bibliography in the back? No, no, no. no. <laughs> Well, wow. actually, no. <laughs> Are you an academic? <laughs> Depends on your uh, yeah. definition of academic. You mentioned that you didn't talk to anybody in the family, obviously, about mm-hmm. the grief of the last couple of years yeah. because, uh, you know, yeah. there's a moment. Anybody here go to either one of the last shows in Toronto or watch the Kingston show? <laughs> All right. So... There's that moment. There's that moment where Gord is on the side of the stage and he's singing, uh, it's toward the end of Grace 2. Mm-hmm. And he gets to the, uh, the, the hymn here, yep. hymn here now. Yep. 
And in Kingston, he, he doubles over mm -hmm. and his face contorts mm -hmm. and it looks as though he is going to break mm -hmm. in that moment. Yeah. Reading the book, mm -hmm. we find out that something very similar happened in Toronto. Well, the one in Toronto was a, that vi there's a video clip of the Toronto thing that has been viewed a million times, literally a million times. Mm -hmm. it, it went viral. And, and I think people, it was, I find that fascinating that people really wanted to see that, I think. Like they wanted to see that expression of pain. Otherwise, they see this virile man kicking cancer in the ass. And here's this one moment of the show where it's very emotional. Now, you, being a large hip fan, probably saw that differently. I don't want to watch that ever again. Okay. I don't need to see it but, anymore because I felt it. True, but I feel like a lot of serious hip fans knew that he always screams at the end of that song. He does. Like that's part of the song. And I do not doubt that he's feeling a lot of emotions during that moment. But I talked to this one uh, drama professor who's a huge hip fan, and he said, you know, he works with actors all the time, and, and you might be doing a very emotional scene in a play, and maybe it's about maybe it's about abuse or something, and you yourself have been abused. So you're acting in this play about abuse, and you come to this heavy scene. And, but the thing is, you know that scene is coming. That's not a surprise to you. So you may very well draw upon your own life experience to, to act that scene, but you also know how to get out of it. You know there's an ending to that scene. This is not life where you might sit there and scream for an hour. This is a play where you're doing the scene and you know it ends. That doesn't mean your emotion is not real. People will be like, oh, wow, that actor was, you know, they actually were feeling it. They're also conscious, they're professionals, they're conscious that they're in a play. And if you think about, uh, if you think about that, that is perhaps the moment when he allowed himself to be emotional, you know? I mean, again, that, that is conjecture. Because there there's no doubt genuine emotion as well. I mean, you watch the Kingston show and he sings a song, Fiddler's Green, which is about his deceased five-year-old nephew. And that's very moving. That was the moment. I watched it over here in uh, yeah. Larkinville, yeah. Uh, one of the public viewing parties, because, you know, as you know, yeah. we had them here, yep. too. Yep. And uh, at that point, I, I have young nieces and nephews now. Yeah. Uh, they're all little itty-bitty cute things. Mm -hmm. And hearing that song now, mm -hmm. it, it's another one that I, I can't really stomach mm -hmm. anymore. Yeah. And so I start crying, and there's a woman behind me. She's crying, and yeah. I hear her. I don't know who she is. Yeah but I hear her, and so I put my hand on my shoulder, mm -hmm. she puts her hand on my hand, and then we stand up and we hug each other, yeah. and we cry together, mm -hmm. because what else can you do yeah. in that moment but have yeah. that feeling? Mm -hmm. And so the cynic in me, knowing full well the moment in Toronto, mm -hmm. knowing that it happened again to mm -hmm. some extent in Kingston, the cynic in me wonders whether it was in fact scripted. But I also, now I have to ask, like, does it matter? Doesn't matter, doesn't matter at all. It was a very real thing. Did he need that as much as we did? But here's the thing, like, I think we want to read too much into it. Like, did we see him break down? Like, no, we didn't. You know why? Because he finished the song, he, he hears the band finishing, he picks up the mic stand, and he drops it on the beat. And he says, thank you very much, good night. Like, out. It was, it was time. I felt it. God, that was harsh. I did it in front of all these people. But you know what? Song's over. Thank you very much, good night. That's a professional. That is a stone cold, totally pro, not cold. That's the wrong, not, nothing cold about it. But that is a professional performer. A total pro. That's I, what he's here for. That is exactly what he's here for. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do you have any questions not about death? Yes. <laughs> okay, good. Actually, I do. <laughs> Again, on Kingston, mm -hmm. he stands up and he addresses the audience and he says, you know, mm -hmm. we're not really a country. We need to do something. Mm -hmm. Speaking, of course, about the indigenous people and the... the residential schools. Residential schools, yeah. thank you. 
Actually, Wenjie. he didn't mention residential schools at the show. That was later. He was speaking more broadly. At he was speaking, time. that's correct. Yeah. He was speaking more broadly at that moment. But what does, in, in your heart of hearts, in your mind, what did he mean by do something? What does that look like? Well, I think that's deliberately vague. He wanted to address that in that motion. He knew that all those millions of people were, were watching, and he wanted to turn that spotlight towards something that, that had really affected him in the last couple of years. I mean, he was really on a mission, and that was very clear. Three weeks after that show, he drops that press release announcing Secret Path, and he says, you know, we are not the country we thought we were. Mm -hmm. And so that was on his mind that whole time. And he, he grew up not knowing that part of Canadian history, and he felt betrayed by that, and he really wanted to set things straight. They've not come a long way, but a lot more people are talking about these things now than they would have been two years ago. Yeah, and that's Three fascinating too, and that's, that's a conversation we should have in another context. I think we should. <laughs> um, the last year a little bit lighter, mm -hmm. as I promised. If you were to distill the hip down to a single sound, mm -hmm. not a note, not a lyric, not a song, but mm -hmm. a sound. Hmm. Of like a musical sound? Any, a sound of music? Any sound. Like <laughs> it could be a plate breaking somewhere. Right. It could be... A loom call. <laughs> see, that's kind of one that <laughs> comes joking. to mind, right? I'm joking. That's a very difficult question and I do not what know how to answer it. What kind of tree do you think they would be? No, no. I'm, I don't mean that. No, I'm not sure, but I, I, I do think that their musical evolution is also fascinating. I mean, you listen to the first record and you listen to the last record, and those are pretty polar opposite. The and rawness of Small Town Breakdown. Yeah. You don't really hear on. No, and I love the last record. One of the most tragic things, I think, is that they really came to a place where, to, to me as a fan, I felt like there's some records where they're kind of, there's a bit of second guessing going on, and then that one is just like, let's just do whatever we want. Because the year before, they had toured fully completely. Like, they got reissued, and they did a tour where they just played that record straight through, and that's their most popular record, and people loved it, and yay. So we play this thing that everybody wants to hear. So, you know, realistically, apparently Rob Baker told Kevin Drew, like, I just really want three or four songs we can play live. That's what I want. And other than that, like, let's just let's do whatever just we want. Let's just go. Let's just do something nuts. So uh, I love that record. And it's a, it's a great high point to go out on. And of course, it's, it's tragic because it's like, that leads to even more what ifs. What would the one after that sound like? We do hear things on Man Machine Poem that are just so different. Like mm -hmm. the intro to the song Man and yeah. the intro to uh, like uh, Ocean Next is just yeah. the time sequence of it. it or the time signature is so It's 8-8 eight, eight and 6 eight. Yeah, and there's yeah. a lot of like dissonance in that album, mm -hmm. yeah. which, you know. And yeah. soundscapes. And to me, like Daniel Lanois turned them down twice. And Daniel Lanois, of course, made uh, The Joshua Tree and Actung Baby, and he made Peter Gabriel's So, and he's made so many great records, Bob Dylan's Time Out of Mind. And he's Canadian. And they recorded a lot at his studio in New Orleans, but he turned them down twice. And so that's another what if. What would a Tragically Hip record produced by Daniel Lanois sound like? And I think Kevin Drew found out. Or came as close. Came pretty close. Yeah. Came very close. I actually think it wouldn't sound that good. I think Lanois would smother the hip. But I th <laughs> so I think Kevin Drew did a better job than Daniel Lanois would. Moving them up to the loft. Yes. In the sure. bathhouse was yeah. a great idea. Yeah. Letting them play together as a band. Okay, this is another philosophical one. But it, it, it ties in the good folks in this room. Just out of curiosity, being that this is a border town, how many people made the trek across the river for tonight? <laughs> All right. So, obviously... The Tragically Hip were a Canadian band. Mm -hmm. They were Canada's band. Okay. Sure. So put aside the Canadiana. Put yeah. aside all of the local references in their songs. Mm -hmm. Put aside the Band of Brothers on stage, the denim jackets, mm -hmm. the maple leaf flags. Put all that aside. Why does this band mean so much to so many Canadians? And 
two-parter. Taking a look around here and knowing, mm -hmm. to some extent, the makeup of the people in this room, mm -hmm. why does it mean so much to American fans like this that come out, that fill the arena down the street on the Fully Completely tour, and 30-odd shows in their 30-year career? Like, why does this band, why do they, why are they part of our lives in this way that two years after Gord's diagnosis, we're sitting here tonight having this conversation while people are enjoying their beverages? Three words. Great fucking band. It's that simple? Yeah. <laughs> I could say more, but why? Why would I say any more? <laughs> okay. Last question, and then we will let the pros in the back come out. <clears throat> oh, be nice. This is, this is a biggie. The spin? This is a biggie. Oh, the biggie. This is, this is a very crucial okay. question. All right. I hope I can hear it over what's happening over there. Yes. Who is Gord Downey backing in the first round of the playoffs, the Bruins or the Leafs? That is the most obvious question in the world to anybody who knows this man. It's uh -huh. you, me, and the bees, baby. There we go, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. Amber Healy, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Thank you very much for having me. Jeremy Hoyle and the Strictly Hip are up very shortly. Well, that was a wonderful interview. Thank you for doing that and getting us involved in that, Amber. Thanks for uh, suggesting it, Mike. I honestly was just going to get up on stage and try not to make a fool of myself and ask, you know, interesting questions. And yeah, we, we ran with it. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Constantly looking for content. That's what podcasting is about. So because we're podcasters, now is the point where we sort of wrap up. And every week I have to record these these outros, these, you know, the, all this important information about the episode. And uh, because you are the interviewer of this episode, I'm going to hand over that responsibility to you. So go ahead. <laughs> Throwing work at me since 2004. Exactly. <laughs> You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. It takes a lot of people to put on an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced the podcast. Michael O'Connell was the host. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music, and I, Amber Healy, wrote the web content and interviewed our guest this week, author Michael Barclay. Do you want to get the latest news on our podcast, including upcoming episodes, exclusive content, and information about live events? Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. That was perfect. Thanks. Cool. The Capital Culture Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Nania and Jason Fraley. We have a new podcast called Capital Culture. Each week we go in-depth with chefs like Marcus Samuelson and writers like Bon Appetit's Adam Rappaport. We'll also talk plays with Kathleen Turner, movies with Emma Stone, and music with Smokey Robinson. Not to mention some of your favorite WTOP voices. The Capital Culture Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC. The Target USA podcast with your host, J.J. Green. Russia could render a huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. That could touch the whole of the United States. ISIS. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to see an attack. 
This is J.J. Green. Join me each week for the latest on U.S. and international security on Target USA. The Target USA podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC.